One of the peculiar things about reading through the gospel accounts is how the more Jesus does and the more Jesus says that is true, the more hostility he's met with. It's very puzzling, very strange. But at the same time, as the darkness seems to get ever darker and ever stronger, Jesus is given opportunity, opportunity to make the light shine like never before and the opportunity to make himself all the more clear, if you will, as if he hasn't been clear in the past. So what we're going to do this morning is look at the 12th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew and things are at an all-time low when it comes to hostility, uh, when it comes to animosity against Jesus. Things are really building um, in a bad sense and yet you will be encouraged today. You will be encouraged by how amidst the darkness, Jesus says things and does things that all the more compel you to want to follow him, to trust in him, and to worship him. I promise. A great text. We're going to look at the first 21 verses. We won't pre-read it. We'll just work our way through it. And as we do, here's your assignment. Your assignment is to identify the designations or the titles that we can assign to Jesus because of what he says. So we're going to look for Jesus saying things about himself that we can identify as a title. Oh, that's a title for Jesus. Oh, that could be used as a title for Jesus. And we're not just doing it because we need something to do. Um, We're doing it so that we can understand who he is better, what he promises, and so that we can trust him and trust Him more, if I can put it that way. Continue trusting in Him. And so it will compel us to want to worship Him when we see who He is all the clearer amidst the darkness. So I hope you're ready. I'm certainly ready. Let's look at the first verse of chapter 12. Again, we're going to look at the first 21 this morning. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. If you know anything about the Jews, if you know anything about Israelites, there's a word that really stands out there. It's meant to be the standout word, and the word is what? It's Sabbath. This is all happening on the Sabbath. Sabbath means rest. Shabbat, Sabbath means rest. The Sabbath is the day of rest. It's Saturday. And if you are a farmer, you're not supposed to farm. If you're a fisherman, you're not supposed to fish. Whatever it is that is your ordinary job, you rest on that day, okay? Familiar words to us, even if the Sabbath isn't familiar, familiar words are these words, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, this is from the Ten Commandments. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates day of rest. This is happening on the day of rest. Verse 2, but when the Pharisees, the supposed Bible experts, serious-minded, saw it, saw what they were doing, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Harvesting, gotcha, aha, right? And if they're saying, your disciples are doing what's unlawful, really the accusation is made against whom? 
It's against Jesus. I mean, they, they don't really give two cents about the, the disciples. They're going after Jesus. Your disciples are doing this. Therefore, you're lawless. Therefore, you're guilty. You're busted. Gotcha. Before we move on, it's just a good time to say, wait a second. If you know much at all about the Bible, much at all about much at all, this is not that, okay? These guys aren't farmers, okay? They're retired fishermen, by and large. I mean, just to name one occupation. So what are they doing? They're taking a stroll on the Sabbath, and they're hungry and need a snack, So what do they do? They do what's allowable, even according to Old Testament law. They pick some grain, rub it, and take some snacks. Aha! Caught you! Breaking the Sabbath! This is not that, as we will see, but how strange this is. Now, I do want to ask you, if Jesus' disciples under his authority are breaking the Sabbath, would that be bad? It would definitely be bad. Everything we know would say that's bad because Jesus, remember, born under the law. Remember, we learned in chapter 3 and in chapter 5, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law, right? He wants to do everything right so as to fulfill all righteousness, legal obligation, chapter 3, chapter 5. And so it really would be a problem for Jesus, the Jew, born under the law, to be breaking the Sabbath. But here's the opportunity that this accusation brings. Look at verse 3 with me where it says, He said to them, Have you not read what David did? First of all, notice the sting, right? The supposed Bible experts who could parse verbs, who could diagram sentences in original languages, who would know, know all the ins and outs, lots of which, if not all, by memory. So these are Bible guys, supposedly. Have you not read... Right? Jesus is here poking the bear. Right? He's being provocative on purpose. Not because he's mean-spirited, but because he is ultimately going to help his disciples and ultimately he's going to help us to be protected against such foolishness. Have you not read what David did? David, your homeboy? (laughs) David, your hero, maybe you would say, and rightfully so. David, David is super important. So he's going to use David when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he, David, entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests, question mark. 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 to 6. They would have known the text and Jesus is putting it before their very eyes saying, okay, I want you to think about this. David's in a unique situation, unique circumstance. David is hungry. His men are hungry. And so they do something that's unique. It's not the norm, but it is unique given the circumstance. But you're meeting someone's basic needs, eating. His argument's going to get stronger, but he uses that as a starting point. Because there's nothing in the text of Scripture that that criticizes David for that. So apparently it was okay. And apparently the Jews thought it was okay. They're not throwing David under the bus. If you're going to be consistent, why don't you throw David under the bus? Because they didn't have buses then. But I digress. You get the idea. They don't want to dethrone David because that happened. It was reasonable. It was understandable. 
And I would suggest to you that something very unique is happening when Jesus is born and when the king is on earth and he's doing what he's doing. Talk about unique circumstances. But the the argument actually becomes even stronger with his second case in point. Verse 5 says, Or have you not read, again, that's a stinger, have you not read in the law Maybe I should preach on the flood today. <laughs> Sounds pretty strong. Or have you not read in the law, verse 5, how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Biblical mandate that the priests do sacrifices. Numbers chapter 28, for example. And they do it every single time. So would you not then conclude that they're violating the Sabbath every single time? Because they're working. No. It's a biblical mandate. So it must not be a contradiction. So Jesus is calling them on their logic. Because at, at a minimum, they're not consistent with their criticisms. More could be said, but let's move on to verse 6 because I can't wait. This is a five-star verse as far as I'm concerned if I'm starring texts of Scripture. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. That's my first designation that I highlighted. Jesus is something greater than the temple. Greater than the temple. That's it. That's a massive statement to make. We can talk about what the implication is in a moment and why that's a great designation for Jesus that would, want to, that would compel you to want to worship him. But let's just know that Jesus says, in fact, he uses the word, I don't want to get it wrong. He uses the word, is here. Not just coming, is here. Something greater than the temple. Well, think with me, if you would, about how great the temple is. Let's start with the Solomonic temple, the temple that Solomon built. It was so great that royalty from other countries would come and see how great it is. The queen of Sheba in 1 Kings chapter 10, she's amazed with all of the things that Solomon has done because he's so wise and he's, he's, he's genius. And, and the high point is when she sees the temple and all of the things that happen in the life of temple life to the point where it says this about the queen of Sheba when she sees the, all of that. There was no more breath in her. The temple's great. But then fast forward and now we we move on past the Solomonic temple. That's not there during the ministry of Jesus. Now the Herodian temple. Think about all that would be going on. This massive structure and the the singing and the musicians uh, and the the smells and the sacrifices. Not only that spiritual significance, the the spiritual... I can get my words out. The spiritual significance... There's atonement. Oh, not only that, what is a temple? A temple is where God's unique presence dwells. The greatness of the temple, it would be unrivaled. What would be greater than the temple? Even today, if you go and see the destroyed temple, you just see the aftermath. It's one of the greatest things I've ever seen. One of the coolest things I've ever seen. 
You, you want to spend days there enamored by how great the temple is as destroyed. Can you imagine when it was up and running and fully functional? Jesus says, is now before your very eyes because I'm here greater than the temple. Pretty provocative. We know elsewhere Jesus says in John chapter 2, I am the temple. I am the unique dwelling of God. I am the unique one as the son where you meet with and have fellowship with God. I'm that one. Something greater than the temple is here. And that's compelling. That's not only a designation. That only also moves me to know there is no better presence of God, if you will. There is no way to be closer than God. There is no, nothing greater than Jesus himself. I'm compelled to want to worship him. I'm compelled to trust in him and keep trusting in him. This is why the author of the book of Hebrews urges us, I'm paraphrasing, don't go back to the lesser because we have what is greater. Yes, there was anticipation. Yes, it was important. Yes, it pictured true things. But now we have what's greater than the temple, the ultimate temple himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. From shadow to substance, borrowing borrowing from the Apostle Paul. Before we move on, just as a thought, and I think we'll come back to it, Something greater than the temple, Jesus. I wonder if we also have something greater than the Sabbath. In Christ. In my notes, I've written time for a breath. Because <sighs> it doesn't get any lesser. It, it just keeps building. So, so now let, let's move on. Verse 7. And if you had known what this means, implying that they didn't, again, very provocative, you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. So they pride themselves in knowing the text. Jesus is making it clear they actually don't understand the intention of the text. That's just a good little lesson to park away in the back of your mind. If you had known what this means, you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Hosea 6.6, it's a direct quote, a literal quote from the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, not the Hebrew version. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, I go, okay. I think it probably is really good that we know what that means. I think I could take a stab at it. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So to, to do what is good for other people, right, is priority number one. Um, not making sure that um, going through the motions happens or something that takes precedence over everything else and it's showing mercy. I think that's right. I think we can get some help though. We can build a better case and understand it more clearly. If we look at the, not the, the Greek version, but the complementary Hebrew version, he uses the word love instead of mercy. They're complement concepts, complement words. And if we keep reading in Hosea 6, 
I desire love, he says. He doesn't use the word mercy, but they're complementary, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Love, mercy shown to other people and knowledge of God. And if, if knowledge of God is related to love of God, I'm going to summarize it this way. He's talking about the very basics of the law. You know what's most basic of all from the Old Testament and the New Testament based on what Jesus teaches? You love your neighbor, show mercy to your neighbor, and you know who God is and you love God. I think that's what he's saying. He's just talking about what we talk about all the time if you want to boil it all down. Okay, yes, we have sacrifices. Yes, we have Sabbath. Yes, we have all of the rituals. Yes, we have all of the things. If you want to boil it all down and understand what God requires, ABCs, you should have learned this in Shabbat school from Mrs. Smith, right, you Pharisees. In kindergarten, know God, love God, love neighbor, show mercy to neighbor. And if you're missing that, you're missing it. I think that's the gist of what he's getting at. If you don't even know the very basics, because if you knew the very basics, you wouldn't be, what does our text say in verse 7? Condemning the guiltless. It's one thing to condemn the guilty, but they're condemning the guiltless. So if we can just think clearly about the basics and they've lost their minds in the name of scholarship, in the name of fidelity, they don't even know the ABCs from Mrs. Smith's Shabbat school. So let's not be those people, for starters. Let's be thankful that Jesus gives this good exhortation, comes to us as a warning. And now before we move on, I want to ask you, who are the guiltless who are pronounced guilty? So if we look at verse 7, The guiltless. Well, who are they? Well, at first blush, and rightfully so, I would say they're the disciples. Because they're the ones who are harvesting. Wah, 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 right? They're the ones who are snacking on grain. They're called guilty. They're the guiltless ones. But they've been pronounced as lawbreakers. I think think that's the right answer. But I think there's another right answer. The other right answer is, remember, we learned from the very beginning... Really, who's being condemned because the disciples are doing the wrong thing? They're condemning the discipler. Ultimately, Jesus is the guiltless one. Ultimately, he's the guiltless one. Ultimately, they're going after him, and ultimately, he's innocent. He's the guiltless one. There's another good designation for Jesus. There's a good, another good title for Jesus. The guiltless. We're going to hear even in our passage, but we've heard it already in in, in the gospel account, that the Father says from heaven about His Son what He's not said about any other individual or any other people group. In Him, I'm what? I'm well pleased. He's the one. He's the guiltless one. I want to look to Him, the guiltless one, to trust, to trust in Him. The guiltless. I love that. Okay, let's move on to the next one, or the next verse, verse 8. For, so he's using some logical defense, he's still building on his argument, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of... There's two designations. There are two titles. Ever so quickly, because we've already looked at the first one in the past, because it came up in chapter 9, the Son of Man is a huge designation. 
But just by way of review, it's taken from Daniel chapter 7, a messianic prophecy. The one who's like the Son of Man is the one who will rule and reign forever. He has to be eternal. He can't ever die. Jesus is going to be resurrected. The dots have already been connected for us. But here again, reemphasizing the Son of Man, the Messiah, the ruler and reigning, the ruling and reigning one who will be only good for his people, not controlling of his people in a manipulative way. He's the, he's the one, the son of man. But that's just review. I, it almost didn't make my list, but I thought they would say, oh, that's a designation too. I know, but we saw it already. But we'll put it on the list. Because it's awesome. The son of man. But notice, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. To be Lord is to be sovereign, right? To, to, to be the king, to be in control, to be in charge. So if anybody knows anything about the Sabbath, it's Jesus because he's Lord of the Sabbath. He's, he's this king of the Sabbath. He's, he's the ultimate one. And how, 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 how could you be Lord of the Sabbath unless you were none other than the Lord? Really strong. So if you want to know something about the Sabbath, it would be really good to go to the Lord of the Sabbath. I would say horse's mouth, but I wouldn't say that about Jesus. You get the idea. He knows what he's talking about. He's Lord of the Sabbath. Now, lest we think again that he's... So that's another designation, Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of rest, the Lord of the rest. Lest you think that that's just a, a kind of ethereal, just, isn't that nice, that's good, it's important. Um, remember again, we have people preaching Bible sermons, supposedly Bible experts, and Jesus is saying, have you not read, have you not read? They don't even know the ABCs and 123s. They're being spiritually abused. And now Jesus comes. He's Lord of the Sabbath. And he's not just being Mr. Mean Guy to show he can win an argument with Pharisees. He's doing this, no doubt, on behalf of his people. Remember chapter 11 at the end? It's no accident that the end of 11 says what it says and then we move into this. Jesus has come to me, right? Those of you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you Sabbath. The rest is found in me. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. So he knows what he's talking about. It's compelling. It's moving. It makes me say that that's good. He's for his people. He, he, he's, he's for freeing his people. He's, he's for encouraging his people. He's for silencing those who would take advantage of his people. I'm drawn to the Lord of the Sabbath. Getting ahead of myself, we would even look to Jesus ultimately as our Sabbath. Hebrews chapter 4. We find our ultimate rest in Him. Rest from spiritual perverts, I'm going to say, who want to abuse us and control us because it's so easy to do with religion. Also, rest from our own guilt. We learned about that when we actually studied chapter 11. Our own guiltiness. It's found in Him, Lord of the Sabbath. Let's move on to verse 9. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. 
I may have mentioned this before, I'll mention it again. Their synagogue, he's part of the community, but there's always this in Matthew's gospel account. I shouldn't say always, but I think it's, it's true, it's common. There's distance because of corruption, because of perversion, even though he's a Jew and he identifies with them in certain ways, it's, it's, it's their synagogue. So a little bit of distance, but notice he goes right in there. He, it's deliberate, it's fearless, he's on mission, he's unstoppable in his love for his people, for their good, even if it means a, 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 a bad situation. Verse 10, and a man was there with a withered hand and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? so that they might accuse him. I wrote in my margin, the guiltless. If you've ever wondered about what the human heart is capable of, wonder no further. Eyewitnesses, seeing it, experiencing it, right there, not virtual reality, in living color, right there, and the conclusion is, We've got to go after him. Tuck that away in your mind. When people you know reject Christ, ultimately it's not because they don't have enough. It has something to do with, don't confuse me with the facts, I know what I believe. It's a heart issue, ultimately. This is just bizarre. Verse 11 says, he said to them, which one of you? Oh, personal. I would have been more diplomatic. Well, there might be people out there He's pointing the finger, right? Which one of you? Which one of you who has, who has sheep, has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? I say be, be careful when you ask questions because you, you have to be ready for any answer. He knows exactly what the answer is because it's just common sense. They would all, to a person, do it. Then verse 12 says, Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? He's calling upon their common sense. I mean, at least then they had common sense. I wouldn't ask that question today. Because maybe sheep are more important than people. But we digress. They still had enough sanctified common sense, that they, right? It's a no-brainer. They're made in God's image, right? It's like, of course. So you guys would help your sheep and you're mad at me for helping people? Are you out of your mind? I'm not the guilty one here. I'm not the crazy one here. You are the problem. Verse 12 goes on to say, so it is lawful. The Lord of the Sabbath tells us, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. That's a wonderful, underlinable, starable sentence. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It's good to show mercy. It's good to show love because it's first and foremost what we're supposed to do. So says the Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 13 says, Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Common sense without spiritual blinders, would say, this man has been shown mercy. This man has been shown love. How wonderful. How amazing. How awesome. Jesus loves neighbor in an extraordinary way. We're so happy for him. 
a fellow human being has received love and mercy and goodness. And remember, that's the very thing that God's law wants. Instead, it's upside down, it's perverted, it's twisted. How can we destroy the one who shows mercy? Verse 15 says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there and many followed him him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Verse 17 says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And he's going to quote Isaiah 42 verses 1 to 3 and I have to take another breath. This is, a, this is a treasure text. There's so much going on in here. I'm probably going to lose my mind. Certainly, I'll lose my place. Um, I'll say what I said in the first service. I'll say it in the last service. I'm not exactly sure how I'm going to even explain this. Thoughtfully, hopefully prayerfully. Um, but it get, this, is, this is great stuff when it comes to putting the pieces together. Jesus is putting the pieces together. It's going to sting against the false teachers, but it's a great blessing and encouragement to the people of God. I promise you, you'll be encouraged. Isaiah 42, 1-3, Behold my servant whom I have chosen. In Isaiah talk, at least early on, it's common to have the servant be Israel. Israel is the chosen servant, the elect servant. And now Jesus is applying that text to himself as the elect servant. Fascinating. Interesting. My beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. So if we're talking about the father looking to the son in using the, 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 the descriptor, my soul, so the, at, the, at the very purest center of all that is real and true is the idea. It doesn't get more genuine is the imagery. I'm pleased with my chosen servant. This is something that the Father could never and never said about the nation. But now we have the ultimate servant. Now we have the ultimate chosen servant, the one in whom he can say, in him I'm well pleased. Ah, fascinating. Moving from temple to something greater than the temple. I would suggest moving from Sabbath to ultimate Sabbath. Moving from chosen servant to ultimate chosen servant. I will put my spirit upon him. So I will uniquely bless him as a king, as Messiah. And he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And maybe just for a second, if you want to just put your finger there, if um, that helps you. And then at the very end, uh, verse 21, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So Gentiles and Gentiles, they're included. He says justice and then hope. I think he's using those words. They're, They're salvation kinds of words. They're blessing words. In other words, through the true ultimate chosen servant, Jesus saying is saying it's me. Not only will the Jews receive salvation, the Jews who believe, 
also the Gentiles will see, receive the good benefits, in other words, salvation. It's going to be in and through him. This is provocative. This is profound. Sometimes it surprises us because we think the Old Testament only emphasizes the Jews. We forget Abrahamic covenant even back in Genesis includes Gentiles. But, but now here, also in Isaiah, you don't wait for the New Testament. It's built in. It's part of the plan. The ultimate chosen servant is going to bring salvation not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. It's right there. And he's the one who's qualified because he's the one in whom the Father is well pleased. He's the one that all of human history has been waiting for, as I like to say, even if human history hasn't known it. He's the one. Stepping back a little further, connecting some theological dots, this would help me to remember and know that when I go back to chapter 1, verse 21, which I always take you back to, name him Jesus because he will... Save his people from their sins. Who's the his people? I've got to conclude it's Jews and Gentiles. It's both. And that's not some plan B. Where did that come from idea that we never heard about until we get to the New Testament? It's all part of the plan. And Jesus is making it clear that this is on point. This is what's happening. It's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Then it says in verse 19, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. What do you suppose that's about? I suppose what it's about is he's like no other. He's he's not going to sound like a typical person who's trying to get people to, to act based upon anything other than the facts. So he's not going to come to town and be the loud mouth... He's not going to be the manipulator making a name because he's the best arguer, best fighter. He's not going to sound like a sales rep. Okay, no offense sales reps. I've been one before or maybe more than once as a matter of fact. But he's he's not going to try to get people to do stuff based upon anything other than the genuineness of who he is. He's not going to sound like a politician. No, his actions and words speak loud enough for themselves if that makes sense. He's going to be different from all of the others trying to get people to do things for perhaps questionable reasons. He's going to be totally different. Then verse 20 says, and I promise you, okay, the theological stuff has been done and now, if you weren't interested before, I hope you were, but but you want to be interested in this. This Savior, this chosen servant, and this is very different from Israel, the chosen servant, who blew it here time and time again, and they're blowing it even in this setting time and time again. But notice Jesus doesn't. In verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Bruised reed, reeds are everywhere in the land. A reed is used for lots of different things, but a reed is going to be used for, for writing. And when it's bruised, when it's damaged or something like that, you just throw it away. It's bruised. I'll just get another one. They're, they're dime a dozen. He's using the imagery to talk about people. And the, think about the backdrop of the Pharisees being abusive, just blasting people. Jesus, the good, kind, genuine Savior, won't throw away the bruised reed. 
Jesus, the genuine kind Savior, won't, when there is a smoldering wick, just snuff it out and say, Diamond doesn't, I'll just do another wick in my candle. No, he's actually going to care. And I love this part. I want you to love this part. I so badly want you to love this part. At the end of verse 20, until he brings justice to victory. Until the very end, I would say ultimate end would be when he returns. Until everything is made right, he's going to take care of his people, whether they're like a bruised reed or a smoldering wick. To the very end, I love the way he says that, he will bring it to victory. And the implication is he will bring you to victory. So this isn't for the strong and the mighty. No, this is for all who would believe in Jesus and he doesn't leave any behind. He brings us to victory. I doubt you'll hear anything better than that today. When no one's for you, no one's helping you, everyone's letting you down, Jesus is the kind of Savior, the Lord of the Sabbath, something greater than the temple. He will bring you to victory. So don't trust in me. Don't trust in anybody else. Ultimately, you've got to look to Christ. You've got to look to Christ. We all do. And in His name, the Gentiles will hope. It's really great stuff from Jesus. And even though, like I said at the beginning, what a, what a dark context. They're just after him, after him, after him. But it provides him an opportunity to connect with those people and us and say, you know what, he's not going to leave anybody behind. He's that kind of savior. Different from the chosen servant Israel and their history. They were never fit to be the ultimate ones for the deliverance of the Gentiles. What a good heart we see from Jesus and his demeanor. In wrapping up, connecting just a few more dots, the servant motif, just to give you a little bit more of Isaiah because you're missing Pastor Mike Holloway's class that's on respite, hopefully to return sometime soon. A servant is someone who's trusted. Moses was a servant. Abraham's called a servant. David's called a servant. Joshua's called a servant. The prophets are called servants. And Israel is called a servant. But the problem is none of them have been perfect. None of them have been qualified to the point where God can say, I'm well pleased. You're fit. But history has been anticipating the one. History has been moving toward the one. So I love this note in the Reformation Study Bible. I love it enough just to even read it for you. Isaiah has already identified the covenant people Israel as the servant of the Lord. Chapter 41, chapter 42, 43, 44, 45, 48. Now he introduces another application of the expression to describe an individual who by divine empowerment stands in contrast to the ineffective and idolatrous of chapter 41. This individual will succeed where Israel has failed in her divinely allotted mission. 
That note goes on to say, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, unlike Israel, which has been disobedient and has suffered for her own sins, while nonetheless complaining of being abandoned by the Lord, chapter 40, chapter 49, this prophetic figure is obedient, suffering in silence for Israel's sins, and looking forward in hope to final vindication, I'll add, even for the Gentiles. So Matthew 12 is connecting some pretty serious dots. Greater than the temple. Greater than the Sabbath as the ultimate Sabbath. Jesus is the one history has been waiting for. The ultimate chosen suffering servant of Isaiah 53. I'll end with this. So then there remains a Sabbath. Rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Quotation from Hebrews chapter 4, talking about Jesus. He's our ultimate rest. Father, thank you so much for the complexities and simplicities of history. Thank you for having a plan and a purpose. And thank you that it's been unfolding from the very beginning so as to ultimately center upon your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful that He will see us through to the very end so that victory is sure even for those of us who feel so weak. In Jesus' name, amen.